The shock index gives us the ability to identify these patients at high risk for decline when they're still compensating. But often they are at the end of their ability to compensate. Hey there, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. Welcome back to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. Today, we're talking about a tool that might help you determine how sick your patient is. And that tool is calculating shock index. But like every clinical concept, it's easier to wrap my head around it when applied to an actual patient. So let me tell you about Mr. Fields. That's the name I'm giving this patient who is a farmer because obviously I would never use a real patient's name or age in my podcast. So Mr. Fields came through our ED after sustaining a few injuries when he fell off his tractor. You may have seen the memes and videos about farmers being some of the toughest patients out there. They are so accurate. I have cared for many farmers with major injuries and they're just cool, calm, collected, and don't seem to express pain the same way as the rest of the patient population. Now, this is obviously an overgeneralization, but suffice to say, if a farmer says they're in pain, it might be worse than they're letting on, as was the case with Mr. Fields. His leg had a big old laceration over his shin and he crushed his ankle and so his wife had to drive him in. Yet another clue that it's really bad because they usually drive themselves. I'm telling you, farmers don't play. So a little more about his history. He took Eliquis for atrial fibrillation and was on amiodarone and a beta blocker for rate control. He denies all complaints except for the obvious left leg injuries. The x-ray showed that he had that superficial wound over his shin and multiple ankle fractures. Okay, so he sutured his laceration. The ankle needed surgery though, so he splinted it and the plan was to operate in the morning. While waiting for the bed on the orthopedic floor, Mr. Fields became diaphoretic. I took a set of vital signs and they weren't that crazy. Heart rate of 110 blood pressure 105 over 80, respiratory rate 22, oxygen saturation 96%. Now, none of these vitals are too alarming, but the diaphoresis was not letting up. And so I'm asking Mr. Fields, how's your breathing? Fine. Does your chest hurt? No. Do you hurt anywhere? Yeah, my lower back hurts a little. So I go grab the doc to reassess the patient because we hadn't even addressed his back pain. I mean, this is the first he'd mentioned it and the diaphoresis, oh, that's always a red flag for me. So additionally, he had a shock index of greater than one, which should also raise a red flag. His next set of vital signs were a little more concerning. Heart rate of 120, blood pressure of 100 over 75. Can you guess what's going on? 
Well, if you guessed hypovolemic shock from a pelvic fracture that caused bleeding into his pelvis, then you'd be right. (laughs) But none of us guessed that. His vital signs didn't seem that shocky, right? And his MAP, mean arterial pressure, maintained greater than 65, and his systolic blood pressure never dropped below 90 until after he'd been in the ER for over an hour. After his second set of imaging, when we sent him back to look at his pelvis, well, then his blood pressure started to tank. We had to give blood products to stabilize him, and he got a couple surgeries. So now let's talk about this shock index of greater than one. To begin, let me remind you that blood pressure does not equal perfusion. For so long, in my mind, if a patient had a blood pressure greater than 90 systolic, I didn't need to worry about him. Wrong. Patients could have poor perfusion with excellent compensation, and so their blood pressure is maintaining a pretty number for you. For now, you can only compensate until you can't. So shock index takes into consideration that compensation and simultaneously looks at the blood pressure and the heart rate. So shock index equals heart rate divided by systolic blood pressure. So a normal shock index is between 0.5 to 0.7. A high risk shock index is between 0.8 and 0.9. And a critical or very concerning shock index would be greater than one. But that's a lot of math. And I don't like doing head math if there's decimals involved. So the easiest way that I like to remember shock index is if the heart rate is greater than the systolic blood pressure, then you have a shock index of greater than one, period. So here's a few examples just to help you make sense of it all. Okay, a heart rate of 110 and a systolic blood pressure of 110 would be 110 divided by 110 equals a shock index of one, concerning. All right, how about a heart rate of 110 with the systolic blood pressure a little better at 120, right? That would be a normal systolic blood pressure. Well, because of the tachycardia, we still have a shock index of 0.9. So how about a heart rate of just 100 and a systolic blood pressure of 120? Well, now you have a shock index of 0.8. So let's do textbook normal. Heart rate of 80, systolic blood pressure of 120. That would be a shock index of 0.6, which is perfectly normal because perfectly normal is 0.5 to 0.7. Okay, I could do so many iterations of this. How about tachycardia without hypotension? So heart rate of 140 and systolic blood pressure of 120. Divide that out, you get a 1.2. Or how about heart rate of 120, systolic blood pressure of 110? That's a shock index of 1.1. Okay, so here's the deal. Your heart rate should never be greater than your systolic blood pressure unless you're a child. Tachycardia is the body mounting a compensatory response to not enough perfusion. But lots of things can cause tachycardia. Hey guys, I'll get back to the episode in just a second, but I wanted to pause to let you know that if you love my podcast but wish there were more of these awesome episodes, well, I have great news for you. There is more. My Rapid Response Academy is basically podcast 2.0, plus the huge added bonus of community. I love hosting this podcast, but it's just me recording into a microphone often by myself. And this extroverted gal who loves to both teach and mentor nurses just wanted more. 
So in the community I created, I get to teach live every Friday and break down topics that I think every nurse needs to know. From deep dives into the pathophys of every emergency you can think of, to some of the heart of nursing topics as well, like how to advocate with confidence for your patient, how to de-escalate situations, how to deal with bullies on the unit, how to be an amazing preceptor and charge nurse, and some of the mindsets and boundaries that have helped me stay in nursing for the last 20 years, not burn out, and thrive at the bedside. I love the opportunity to answer your questions live, and it's such a joy to see nurses supporting each other in this community. So if you're an acute care nurse that wants to expedite your growth as a nurse and invest in yourself so that you can provide the best care to your patients, you would love my Rapid Response Academy. So to learn more, I put a link in the show notes for you. Hope to see you there. Like when I run a flight of stairs, I become tachycardic. It's my body's attempt to get extra blood and oxygen to my muscles because they're burning energy. Mr. Fields was hypovolemic from blood loss into his pelvis. So his heart rate had to pump a little faster to circulate that lower amount of blood volume. The shock index gives us the ability to identify these patients at high risk for decline when they're still compensating. But often they are at the end of their ability to compensate. So most literature supporting the efficacy of using shock index as an indicator of badness comes from the trauma hemorrhagic shock patient population. However, there are also studies now showing it as a valuable guide for when to initiate or increase vasopressors in septic shock. And when it comes to intubating, patients with a shock index of one have an even greater chance of decompensating when being intubated. And so we had to be extra vigilant in that patient population to mitigate all of the hemodynamic risk of intubation. But y'all, there is no one indicator for shock. Like there are so many clinical indicators that should be taken into consideration together. From lactate to end tidal CO2 to pulse pressure to skin assessment to respiratory rate, like I could go on and on. Shock index is not perfect, but it can help raise an index of suspicion for patients that aren't blaringly in shock and lead us to investigate further. But let's talk about some limitations of the shock index. So first off, not all shocks cause tachycardia. Patients can be bradycardic in neurogenic shock. And sometimes bradycardia itself is what leads to poor perfusion and shock. If I was renaming (laughs) this indicator, I would call it the badness index. Like it's just another clinical cue that badness is coming. I think it would apply to real sick asthmatics too. Like if they're super tachycardic with soft blood pressures, you kind of got to ask yourself what's going on with the patient. So even though it's called the shock index, there are types of shock that would not flag with a score greater than one. Next, not all patients in shock can even mount a tachycardic response. Like some elderly folks have trouble getting tachycardic. Patients on beta blockers, their tachycardic response is literally blocked by the medications they have on board. But even a patient on beta blockers, if they can mount a tachycardia, like Mr. Fields, you should be even more concerned. The other time the shock index might not be the best indicator is if a patient is already on vasopressors, including PO vasopressors like midodrine. It will mask the low systolic blood pressure that helps to raise that index of suspicion. And finally, shock index really needs to be taken into clinical context. Like as I already mentioned, there are so many factors that might skew your shock index. Did the patient recently work with physical therapy? 
Are they in pain? Are they anxious? Like you can't just look at a single snapshot and not compare all the vital signs before and how they've been trending to this point. It's also important to consider what's going on for the patient at the time you're taking the vitals as activity can falsely elevate heart rate. So I share this with you, not as the holy grail, the be all end all diagnostic determinant of who's sick and not sick, because my friends, that does not exist. I share this with you to put in your toolbox to keep in mind when assessing patients. Kind of like surge criteria, it's a wide net that catches a lot of fish, but they aren't all septic. The shock index is kind of the same. It'll help you look at more than the blood pressure to recognize patients who are at risk for shock, but not all shock patients will have an elevated shock index. So use it as a tool to help you identify badness is brewing. Feel empowered to say, I'm concerned because the patient's shock index is greater than one. But don't feel like you have to call a rapid response for every patient with a shock index of one. Remember to pay attention to your gut. That clinical gestalt is so valuable. And when paired with evidence-based validated tools like the shock index, you have a powerful tool to help you advocate. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you like this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport. So trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as The Rapid Response RN. 